and trying to live and buy a house here in Slato, the price has jumped dramatically over the last several months. Again, we're in a position where the places where the jobs are, the people who want to work in those lower paid jobs can't afford to live unless they're living with their parents. And there's some degree of uh, not wanting to live with parents. I think it's normal. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, with another exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff McClure. And if you listen to this radio program very often, you recognize me. I'm going to say Jeff and Jake McClure, Jake and Jeff McClure. Jake's on vacation. Now, who authorized that? We're still investigating, but it may never be revealed. But he's traveling up to Colorado where the weather is theoretically cooler and the mountains are higher and things are better than they are down here. Although I can't say that I'm complaining about the weather down here. We're getting some good rain. So we start off as usual with our disclaimers, disclosures, and other such things as that. Personal Wealth Coach is not only this radio program. It's also the name of a registered investment advisory firm in Salado, Texas, registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, the fact that we're registered with the SEC doesn't mean that they approve of us or disapprove of us. They neither approve or disapprove. Well, they disapprove of some things, but they never approve of anything. It just simply means more than have, we have more than $100 million under management, so the SEC has decided to keep an eye on us. The information we present on this radio program is information, and it's educational, and it is not considered to be investment advice. Investment advice is given to people who have individual needs and individual circumstances, and it's, by the way, private investment advice. It's subject to restrictions as to how, how, can be, how it can be displayed or, or shown to other people. So I can't very well give that kind of information on the air. I can't give investment advice on the air, but I can give educational information, and that's what this radio program is all about. Yeah. The information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Boy, that fills it up. If you would like to join with us on the radio program, raising a question to stimulate my aging brain, or making a comment about what's been said or about the economy in general or investing in general, you're certainly welcome to give us an email at jeff at tpwc.com. That's jeff, J-E-F-F, at tangopapawhiskeycharlie.com. And we'd love to have some stimulation to my aging brain as we do this. Let's start off on the markets as we always do. The stock market rose during the week, which is a good thing, I guess. Uh, it didn't rise very much. It rose 0.40%. And it's like many another week. Had you been watching the market all week, you would have seen a lot of drama and a lot of excitement as it went up and down. And it finally rose about one, the S&P 500 rose about 1.3% on the last day of the week. And that cleared it out with a 0.4% gain. On Thursday, it took a little bit of a nosedive, as I refer to it as it spooked. The market the stock market right now is looking for something to be spooked of. It's looking for something to fear, which is a very, 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 very good sign, by the way. Bull markets do indeed climb a wall of worry. And there's a lot of fear out there right now that we're going to get a correction. Uh, why would we get a correction? Well, we've just had a pretty massive bull market. The S&P 500 is up about, uh, let's see, 16.33% so far this year. It closed out at 43.69.55. 
it's very unrealistic to consider that it would do 32% during the whole year. So at some point, it's either going to level off and just be boring, which the stock market rarely is, or it's going to have a correction. And then it'll probably recover from the correction. That's the way, the way things work. Why would it have a correction? Well, Morningstar says the S&P 500 is running about 4% ahead of its fair market value. Now, that's just their opinion, but their opinion does carry a lot of weight. And if the market is slightly overvalued, then almost anything can drive it down 4%. But that overvaluation is concentrated in five stocks, believe it or not. But those five stocks constitute 20% of the S&P 500. They're called the FANGs. And I may get this wrong. Facebook, Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft, and I can't remember what the other one is. But Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, anyway, Google, Google, which is Alphabet. But they're all there, and they constitute about 20% of the S&P 500, or actually 22%. Now, we've seen this concentration before, and we've seen it at the top of bull markets. Uh, although, in this particular case, the concentration is a little higher than normal. It isn't quite as high as it was in 2000. And anything that would affect those particular stocks would cause a market correction. In other words, you could have those stocks drop by 50%, which is a very easy thing for them to do in their high price-to-earnings ratio condition right now. And it would take the market down 10% if nothing else went down. But the problem, of course, is that as soon as they start to pan, as soon as they start to fall, then we'll see dramatic falls in the rest of the market. The, the stock market, the S&P 500, is trading about 20 to 21 times earnings right now, future earnings, which is not abnormal. This is pretty close to where it normally is in a bull market. Uh, it's not cheap. It's not overly expensive. But it's based that 20 to 21 percent, 20, I'm sorry, 20 to 21 times price to earnings ratio is important because it indicates that the market is priced right now at full value based on what expected earnings are over the next year in the S&P 500. If anything were to interrupt those expected earnings, then the market would drop. That's just it's going to happen. And the, expected, the expectations are what are driving the market right now. Now, it's interesting that the value side of the market, which is up, which we measure by the CRSP mid-cap value index, and we, not just the value side, there is a large-cap value index too. We, the mid-cap value index we use because since very, very large-cap growth stocks are driving the market right now, we focus also on the mid-cap value stocks. Value is the opposite of growth. Growth stocks are priced based on their expected future earnings, whereas value stocks are priced based on their intrinsic value or the value of the assets they hold. And value stocks are up about 19% this year, but they were down 0.28% for the week, which tells you something about the way the market is working. There's a lot of fear in the market right now, which is good. But very interestingly, on Thursday when the market dropped, and there's another, the Wall Street Journal reporters went out and asked the traders why did it drop, and they got about 20 different answers, which means there is no general answer. It dropped because it dropped. The lead answer was because the Treasury bill yield dropped further. We'll talk about that a little more. When the market drops, people start selling because it's psychological. And there's a lot of people out there that are scared, which brings me into a question we've already gotten today from John. Thank you, John, for the question. He noted that... Uh, 
the, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal that stated that uh, the, one of the main reasons for the market collapse in 1929 was margin. In 1929, when we had the big market collapse that marked the beginning of the Great Depression, didn't cause the Great Depression, but it was, uh, it was the mark of the beginning. That market drop came on the heels of a margin percentage of the total capitalization of the New York Stock Exchange that was in excess of 20%. In other words, the total, when you look at the total value of the New York Stock Exchange, all the stocks in the New York Stock Exchange in October of 1929, 20% of that value was borrowed against the other, part, other stocks. And in many cases, people were unwilling or unable to pay that back without selling stocks. And of course, of course, as soon as they start selling stocks, and that causes the market to drop, which causes further pressure on margins. It's called margin calls. So the market had a 20% drop built into it in October of 1929. And that 20% drop was about how much it dropped in initially, and then it started dropping further as people had to sell stocks. In many cases, they didn't sell the stocks because once the price gets down to a certain level on the stocks, the brokerage automatically starts selling the stocks, and there weren't very many buyers at that point because everybody was panicked. It's called the Panic of 1929 for a good reason. Where are we today? Well, the total market capitalization of the S&P 500 is about two and a half, not, not the S&P 500, but the Wilshire 5000, which is the total market and includes very tiny stocks in, in, on the NASDAQ and everything else, is about two and a half percent. Now, where does that stand versus history? Well, in 2007, that number was three and a half percent, and it's been up as high as five. Why does it not go to 20 percent? Well, there's a couple of reasons. There's something that drives the price in the market called resume. Treasury Reg T, which says that you can't borrow more than a certain percentage of the value of the stock. And the other thing is the self-interest of the major brokerage firms that loan the money against stocks. They also recognize the risk, and they got burned back in 2008 and 2009, and so they're reluctant to loan too much money. Uh, in many cases, the price, the, the margins are there, but there's actually cash sitting in the account to cover the borrowed money. Um, obviously, if the margins get too high, when there gets too much borrowed money in the in the market, the risk the risk starts to go up, and that's just the way life is. But it's not we're not in a dangerous position right now. We're not in an abnormally high position. As a matter of fact, two and a half percent is pretty standard for a bull market like the one we're in right now. So there's no great danger there. Thank you, John, for the question. Let's go on about the stock market. One of the reasons that was cited for Thursday's stock market spook, which had dropped about, a lot of the, the main large cap growth stocks dropped about 2.5% and then came back up again on Friday, was the declining yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note. And indeed, on Thursday, it was down to 1.258%. And those of you who have longer memories can remember that the 10-year Treasury note typically has yielded 3% or more historically. So the fact that it was down to 1.258% on Thursday really kind of had people scared because it's been up as high as 1.75% just in, in May. It's down to 1.258%. Now those are esoteric numbers and they're small things, but they're indicators to a lot of people. But I think the people who got scared got scared because they wanted to be scared. They probably, in many cases, the people who sold stocks on Thursday don't understand the Treasury bond market very well. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people don't understand the bond market or the treasury bond market very well.
bond market is far, far, far larger than the stock market. It's far, far, far more complex. It doesn't have a unified stock exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. It's basically individual broker-dealers trading back and forth their, their share, their, not, not their shares, but their individual bonds. And so it's a pretty chaotic situation out there on the, on the bond market. The 10-year note has been dropping for a very, couple of very good reasons. The debt limit is coming up late this summer. When the debt limit comes up, the Treasury wants to be in a position where it doesn't owe too much money or it'll hit the ball on the debt limit. During the crisis, money has been accruing at the Federal Reserve that belongs to the Treasury, and the Treasury has not been tapping into it. It's, it's Basically, it's like its reserve bank account. That money amounted to about $1.5 or $2 trillion at one point. It's down to less than a tr- just less than a trillion dollars right now. And the Treasury, as it's needed to borrow money recently, last month or two, last couple of months, after the pandemic disbursements of money, has been, by, has been tapping the Treasury, the reserves at the Treasury's reserves at the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, and in doing so, they have issued relatively few 10-year notes. Now, this presents us with a supply and demand issue. If you look around the world, for example, Germany's 10-year, the equivalent of 10-year note, which is a boond, is yielding a negative 0.5%. Now, if you were trying to find some place where you could park your money for the next 10 years, and you have a choice between a very stable German government with a negative 0.5% yield and the U.S. government with around a 1.5% yield, you probably would go for the U.S. government unless you think the dollar is super strong and likely to collapse at some point. Well, the majority of people around the world and the majority of banks and governments around the world have concluded that the Treasury is the, the United States Treasury securities are probably the most secure, most stable investments they can find on the planet. So there is a tremendous demand for Treasury notes. And the 10-year demand has been rising for the last couple of months. Basically, it's the only game in town. Uh, China is unstable and behaving oddly towards its corporations. Europe is still trying to recover from COVID. Matter of fact, the rest of the world is still trying to recover from COVID. The United States seems to have turned the corner on COVID. That's still questionable, but looks like we've turned the corner. And there's a lot of buying pressure on U.S. Treasury securities. A lot of people are trying to buy them. Now, what happens when a lot of people try to buy a security of any kind, like a 10-year note? And by the way, the 10-year note isn't just notes that are issued today and will mature in 10 years. It's any Treasury security that matures 10 years from now. In other words, it could have been issued 20 years ago, and a 30-year Treasury note issued 20 years ago effectively becomes a 10-year note at this point, even though it's technically still a 30-year bond. There's a lot of buying pressure on those, which forces interest rates down. Now, why does it do that? The buying pressure forces the price of the note up. If, and let's use, let's use 100 as the example of a note, although they're technically $1,000 a piece. The convention on the Wall Street is to use 100. Let's say, it's, let's say you have a note that's yielding 4%, 5%. It means you get $50, you get $5 a year off your $100 for every $100 you invest in it. If the price of that note goes up to 101, you're no longer getting the full, you're getting the full $5, but it's no longer 5%. You're getting a lower percent. As a matter of fact, if it goes up to 105, you get nothing for 10 years. If it goes up to 104.50, you're still getting a tiny bit, but that's it. So the issue is, as the price goes up, the interest rate on the note falls 
as the price goes down, the interest rate on the note rises. That's just generally true in any kind of bond. And that's the way it works. So as the price of treasury notes go up, because more people are buying, there's not more people, but there's more buying pressure than selling pressure, then the interest rates go down. And there's been a lot of buying pressure, and there's not been new treasury notes being issued by the United States government so that there's a limited supply. The result is the interest rates are gradually coasting downward. Now, will they, all, will they coast down to zero? No. Because at some point, and that's the point where the market works, the buyers conclude that's as low as an interest rate as I'm going to accept at this point for a treasury note. And they stop buying. And at that point, the treasury note value tapers off and stabilizes. There was a lot of buying on Thursday, obviously, which forced the interest rate down, which scared the market. And the buying pressure slacked off, and there was some selling pressure because people started to sell because they had some gains in their treasury notes. And the interest rates went up a little bit by Friday, so they closed out at one point. 1.360 by the end of the week. So that's kind of the basis of where the current market thinks the Treasury note ought to be. Now, Morningstar and Moody's have calculated separately that fair market value for a 10-year U.S. Treasury note is about 1.6% right now. So the, why is the price lower? Well, again, the Treasury is not issuing new ones, which limits supply. There's a lot of people who want to buy them, which limits demand. So this is, going, this is going to continue. We're in a peculiar economy, to say the least, where things are whipping back and forth and things are changing day to day. And the COVID pandemic, as much as we'd like to think it's over, is far from over. Uh, one of the things that's happened as we get out of the market, well, let's talk about Texas oil, West Texas intermediate crude oil before we go on into the economy. Again, if you'd like to contact me and you'd like to raise a question, offer a question to me that certainly would be welcome at this point. The, you, can see, you can contact me at jeff at tpwc.com anytime you want to. And I'll answer the question on the air. As a matter of fact, I'd love to have questions at this point. I'm here by myself and my, I'm trying to handle a bunch of electronic digital stuff that is actually beyond my comprehension, but I'm trying to handle it anyway. Again, it's jeff at tpwc.com if you'd like to raise a question and we will address it on the air. The Treasury yield is up more than 50% for the year. It's up 48% in 2021. I'm sorry, 2021, it's up 48%. So the market panicking because the Treasury yield dropped just a little bit is ignoring the fact that the Treasury yield is up 50% in 2021 and the Treasury yield curve is quite steep. What does that mean? That means that the Treasury market anticipates good economic growth going forward and a minimum interest rate of around 1.5% at this point needed, 1.360 is where it is, needed to maintain parity. And that's lower than inflation, which indicates that people are far more interested in the stability of their money than they are in getting a good return on the money. However, the Treasury bond continues, the Treasury market, U.S. Treasury market continues to be the best yielding secure position to put your money in the, in the world right now. There's another little interesting thing in the bond market before we go on to oil. The average yield on junk bonds typically is well above inflation. Now, what are junk bonds? Uh, they're sometimes called high-yield bonds. Junk bonds are basically bonds issued by companies that in an economic downturn would go under, maybe not be able to pay their bonds. They're, they're the tail end of the economic spectrum, and they're a little scary to invest in. They tend to move with the stock market rather than against it. And frankly, they tend to be a little bit dangerous. We had a major 
economic crisis in the 1990s because of junk bonds in the United States. But typically, if you're going to loan money to a company that may not be able to pay it back, and a matter of fact, has maybe a 50% chance of not paying the bond back at some point, you're going to want a high interest rate. You're certainly going to want a higher interest rate than inflation. The PCE index came in, which is the preferred, our preferred and the uh, the Federal Reserve's preferred method of measuring inflation came in at 3.9% year over year. The interest rate on junk, the average interest rate on junk bonds right now is 3.4%. And this is the first time since these things have been measured that the interest rate on junk bonds is below inflation, which means that people are pretty desperate to loan money to somebody and get some income, which is a little scary. As a matter of fact, people continually ask me, is the, is the stock market too high? And I, I say continually, frequently ask me. If the stock market is too high, is it, is it likely to crash? Is it in trouble? I'm far more concerned about the bond market than I am about the stock market. There's still a lot of money pouring into bond funds and into bonds across the country from amateur investors. There's still a lot of money pouring in everywhere to bonds. For what reason, I don't completely understand. I guess people are still scared of the stock market, which is a good sign. One of the reasons that the stock market goes up and the bond market goes down is a lot of people... At the same time, historically, it's not always happened that way. But the reason it's happened traditionally is because people are scared of the stock market, so they buy into the bond market. That causes interest rates to go down, bonds to rise. And right now, there seems to be a lot of fear of the stock market. And fear is a good thing in the stock market. The more of it there is, the better up to a point. Of course, there's tremendous fear during a down market, but bull markets are continually full of fear and worry. The place you have to be concerned about when the, is when the stock market news has headlines that said this could go on forever and you see a bull in the headlines, uh, a picture of a bull in the news media, and you see a lot of evidence that people no longer could, are afraid of the stock market. People think this is just a money-making machine. Now, there's some of that actually happening out there right now uh, in the Bitcoin area, although Bitcoin... Interestingly enough, bit, the cryptocurrencies in general are in a in bear market right now. They're down over 50%, which puts them well into bear market territory. Same thing is true with the SPACs, by the way. Special acquisition companies, the companies that listed on New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and said, we are going to list a new company on there. It's going to have a symbol, but we'll tell you later what we'll buy with the money. Those are down about 40% right now from their peak which indicates that there's a bear market actually going on in the speculative side of the stock market, which is, believe it or not, a good thing. We can, the, the stock market always has a bear market going on. Some, well, not always, but almost always has a bear market going on somewhere. As long as those highly speculative issues keep getting pushed down, we're in good shape in the, in the general market because we're bleeding off the excesses. Are there bubbles out there? Yeah, a lot of them but they're gradually working themselves off. The other one we'll get to a little bit in the economy. We're talking about housing. Housing is just plain weird right now, and there's some debate in the was released in the Federal Reserve notes that they're debating what to do about that. I don't know if it'll do any good, but they're debating it. So let's go on uh, West Texas Intermediate Crude. Let's see, was at 74.70. It's up 54% for 2021. It dropped half a percent for the week. What does that mean? Well, the demand has demand is all that's changing, not the supply. The supply is almost constant. Value of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, which is the benchmark we use here in the United States, is up 54% in 2021. 
And it's no coincidence that it's up almost exactly the same amount as yields on the bond market. Both of those, when we say that the price of West Texas Intermediate Crude is 74.70, what we actually are quoting is the contract for the front month. Spot market varies all over the place. But the front month, meaning this July's contracts, which expire this year, are selling for $74.70 a barrel. Interestingly enough, as we go further out into November and December, the price goes down to $72 a barrel, which means that the oil market is anticipating there will be increased supply come along because there's no place that we can see any evidence that somebody thinks the demand is going to fall off. All that's happened in the oil market and all that's happening in the futures contracts for the oil market is based on the fact that demand has increased and will continue to increase going forward. Again, those are all expectations and they're all all the markets are based on that. If those expectations do not come to pass, then expect a correction in the market. And we're basically overdue for a correction because as several people have written recently, the market is priced for perfection. The good news is, as earnings have started to come in this year, this for the, for the second quarter, and earnings came in for the first quarter, we're having a record number of uh, stock company in the S&P 500 earnings beating expectations, 87%. And typically about 60% of the, the companies that report in the S&P 500 have earnings higher than expectations. But we're seeing an 87% higher than expectations, and that appears to be continuing into the second quarter. It's not that the analysts are unduly conservative. It's the analysts are making guesses because we're in a turbulent economy. There's a lot of things holding the economy back, but one of them is not uh, consumer spending, that's for sure. There was a report that the Federal Reserve makes. There is a report Federal Reserve makes to Congress every six months. And it's not paid much attention to because it's couched in very economic Federal Reserve-ish type language that's kind of hard to read and kind of hard to understand. But the key to it was the Federal Reserve said that the labor shortages, labor issues and shortages of parts and material we're holding back the economy from what would otherwise be a faster rate of growth. Now, why is that important? Obviously, if you've tried to buy something recently, we just tried to buy a gallon of paint, a spot paint, a place on our house uh, from a major paint company, and they said that they didn't have the paint. It, not that they didn't have the dyes. They had the dyes to go in the paint, but the base paint itself was all used up, and they were waiting for more. Why is that? Well, because we've got supply chain issues across the economy that are slowing things down. That means that the price that we're going to pay for that paint won't go into the economy and be part of the economic activity in the United States for a delayed period of time while we're waiting on the paint. Why is the paint not available? Well, it's because we had a freeze last winter. That's one of the main reasons. That sounds ridiculous, but the freeze and the electric shutdown shut down refineries all across Texas, and paint is refined at refineries. And it's not the highest priority to make paint at the refineries. So gasoline is a higher priority, and so things are slowing down, and they still haven't caught up. There's a backlog of orders, and we're seeing this all across the economy. Every indicator, every survey says there's a backlog on orders of parts and raw materials and materials in general. This is slowing things down in the economy. In some cases, it's also raising prices, but that's pretty rare at this point. We're not seeing prices go up as much as we're seeing things just slow down. At this point in a recovery... And we're the back to normal index from Moody's indicates we're about 91.5% of the way to full recovery. The Federal Reserve typically goes off the system that they've been using to stimulate the economy, which is to buy bonds on the open market 
and to keep interest rates near zero. Well, the report to the Congress from the Federal Reserve said they're probably going to continue to keep interest rates near zero for the rest of the year. Why? Well, because the economy's not picking up and employment's not picking up the way that it needs to to get back to normal. Why is it not picking up and getting back to normal? Well, because there's a shortage of supply and there's a shortage of there's a shortage of supply of parts and materials and there's a shortage of labor. So the Federal Reserve is unlikely to raise interest rates in the immediate future. I say unlikely to the point of absurdity. And that's the thing the markets are afraid of. That's why we had a dip earlier in the year. And that's the principal fear that's in the markets right now is not that earnings won't come in very well because everything, in, everything we see indicates that companies' earnings are going to do very well and exceed expectations for, this, for the second quarter. Matter of fact, the second quarter will probably be a blockbuster quarter uh, with double-digit GDP annualized growth. One of the fastest, matter of fact, the fastest, we're anticipating the fastest GDP growth in the United States economy during the second quarter that we've seen since 1982, as we were coming out of the recession of 1982, which is not coincidental, by the way. But the slowdown in labor and the slowdown in parts and materials is a blessing because that means the Federal Reserve doesn't have to raise interest rates. And the thing that the traders in the market and the investors in the market that are serious investors, short-term investors at least, are most afraid of is the Federal Reserve will do what it did in 1937, raise interest rates. Uh, in 19, we had the Great Depression because the Federal Reserve, largely because the Federal Reserve, two main reasons, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates in the, in the site in, because they were afraid of inflation, even as the economy was plunging into deflation. And Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley Trade Bill, which, by the way, was signed by President Hoover, uh, went into effect and started a trade war around the world. Those two things conspired to lower business activity in the United States rather dramatically. And as business activity lowered, people spent less money and they started selling stocks. The stock market ultimately wound up down about 80%, which, by the way, is a true catastrophic bear market. Which, by, which interestingly, uh, is forecast this week, several people for, by Bitcoin, on Bitcoin, and it will be down 80% before it starts to recover. So the unregulated Bitcoin market the cryptocurrency market continues to be very much like the stock market of the 1920s. But the rest of the market is relatively stable. So what we're seeing going on in the economy right now is, a, is, an, un, is an artificial slowness in the economy. Now, it doesn't seem that way if you're traveling or if you're trying to get a seat at a restaurant. But it's the, the economy's growth is being slowed down by circumstances that have nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. And since the circumstances have nothing to do with the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve doesn't have to raise interest rates, and that is relieving a lot of fear that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates or stop their bond buying. Now that brings me to another point. The economy has the potential right now to grow a lot more, but it's being restricted by two major things, supply bottlenecks and backlogs and the labor market. And the labor market is, is, is in something that we should discuss at great length. Uh, but the labor market isn't going to fix itself anytime immediately. Been other, we came out that there were quite a lot of reasons for the labor market being messed up. And the supply issues are not going to fix themselves immediately, which means the Federal Reserve has got no immediate need to raise interest rates or cut off its bond buying. And it's buying two kinds of bonds right now. It's buying treasury bonds, which forces interest rates down which is one of the reasons the interest rates on the 10-year Treasury are low, and it's buying short-term bonds and short-term securities as well. 
But it's time to break for commercials, presuming we've got some commercials to play. I don't know if we do or not, but we're going to break for commercials and be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach starring Jeff McClure. The email in here, if you'd like to contact me to make a comment, uh, raise a question, uh, raise a complaint, whatever you want to do, is jeff at tpwc.com. It's J-E-F-F at tpwc.com. Unfortunately, we only have one telephone line, and I'm on it because I'm doing this remotely, digitally, which challenges my aged brain, but it's working. We were talking about the labor issue, labor issues that are strangling the economy right now. And I say strangling the economy. There were some surveys done and a lot of data collected in the last couple of weeks on the labor issues in the United States. There's about 9.2 million people who officially are looking for jobs. That's about 5.9% of the working population, which is why the unemployment rate is at 5.9%. There's a separate scale. There's a separate survey that determines how many job openings there are, how many advertisements for jobs are out there that want to be filled, and it's about 9.2 million. So why aren't the 9.2 million people who are unemployed and looking for work taking the 9.2 million jobs? And the answer, as it turns out, is not simple. In the places where the, uh, where the market, where, I'm sorry, in the places where the extra unemployment benefits have been chopped, we haven't seen a dramatic increase in in and in people employed. So we're not seeing it work out the way that simplistic way that if you just cut the unemployment benefits, people will go back to work. It's not working that way. Uh, we've seen a little bit of increase and but we only we all we noted earlier that only about seventeen percent of the people a couple of months ago were receiving the extended unemployment benefits, 17% of the unemployed people, the rest of them aren't. And that's now down to about 10% of the people receiving the extended unemployment benefits. And it's just not working. So what's wrong? As it turns out, there's a lot of things wrong. A survey, a couple of different organizations who do job listings did surveys, and both of them found that the majority of people who used to work in the leisure and hospitality area was the area that's most visible as because we see now hiring and help wanted signs in restaurants and bars and every place else like that. Those people, about over half of them have said they used to work in the leisure and hospitality area and don't want to anymore. Now, why? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. The principal one is they work long hours, they receive relatively low pay, and it's relatively uncomfortable to work there. And they've been without work now in many cases for several months. And in many cases, they've started back to work in the leisure and hospitality area and on someplace else. The majority of people who are working in leisure and hospitality right now are doing on flex schedules and they're doing on increased wages, but still it's hard to find people to fill that. And you, if you've ever worked as a waiter or a waitress, you understand what I mean when I say it's hard work. It's really hard work. It's sometimes good pay, sometimes low pay. Some places are being able to fill very nicely the places that get high tips and have relatively high wages. The big, the big number of, the largest number of jobs that are unfilled right now are low-wage jobs in hard work. And the fact is, we used to import a lot of people to work in those jobs. We used to import a lot of people from Europe. I don't know if you've ever been to the, 
the, the resorts in, in the Rockies and the beautiful places. But in many cases, we, when we were there, the restaurants were full of waiters and waitresses from Europe who were over here on a short-term visa uh, working special visa where they could work during the summer, for example, and they work during the entire season. Those jobs are just going begging right now because we still are restricting people coming from Europe. But the, the 50% who, who don't want to work in that area anymore are having a dramatic effect. And then we'll see that gradually fill out again as young people come into the market, young people who are looking for work, but there's plenty of work available in lots of other places. The other thing is there was a mass migration during the uh, pandemic of people away from cities. There's a lot of reasons for that, but the, one of the primary reasons is, you can see it, in we saw it happen in Austin rather dramatically locally, is the price of real estate in Austin and the rent rates went through the stratosphere, and they can, they've continued to rise. And so if you own a house in Austin, frankly, you're crazy if you don't sell it at this point. If you, get, if you sell the house, you can't afford to buy another one in Austin, so you move someplace else, which leaves a job opening in Austin. A lot of those people got used to, and a lot of people, they act, actually 50, over 50% of the people who moved or who lost their jobs during the pandemic, when they come back to work, want to work remotely. The employers are not quite as ready for that. As a result, you've got a, about a 40% of the employer jobs available are available in, in the higher paying area, are available for remote work, but about 55% of the people who want to work in those jobs want to do remote work from home. And that's causing a mismatch. Last but not least, there's a lot of jobs that are opening up across the country in places that people can't afford to live. Uh, very, I, for example, we're here in Salado, and you think, well, Salado is a pretty reasonable place to live, but we've been looking at the price of houses. Rental properties are just not available in the Salado area. I mean, they get scooped up so fast that, and the rents have gone up. And trying to live and buy a house here in Salado, the price has jumped dramatically over the last several months. Again, we're in a position where the places where the jobs are, the people who want to work in those lower-paid jobs can't afford to live unless they're living with their parents. And there's some degree of uh, not wanting to live with parents. I think it's normal. So we've got this mismatch going on across the country. And how is it going to be resolved? Well, we're going to have to have more low-income housing available if we want more low-income workers. That's going to take time to build the low-income housing. We're going to have to have higher wages if we want to not have the low-income housing, and that's going to take time to work its way out. And that is, in fact, working its way out now. If you've looked at the price when you go out to eat, it's gone up rather dramatically in the last year. And there's a lot of things happening in the economy of that nature that are putting some whiplash into the system. See, we have another question from John. The Buffett in in indicated the market's total market cap. The Q ratio, let's see what, let me see if I can find anyone more accurate than the other. There's a lot of there's a lot of ratios in the stock market. There's the CAPE ratio, which is based on the past seven, past 10 years earnings, looking at the price of the market today, thinking that things don't change very much, which has not, not proved to be particularly predictive. Uh, it didn't predict the 2007 collapse. It didn't predict, certainly didn't predict the collapse last year. And it's a nice academic exercise, and it always, it, it, continually during a bill market is going to show that the market is overpriced. The Buffett indicator, which by the way was not uh, created by Warren Buffett, uh, indicates that the market is fairly priced right now. But there's, there's a lot of indicators on the market. We, 
if the person of wealth coach tend to stick with the old-fashioned price-to-earnings ratio, although a lot of people say that's outmoded. And we say that the price-to-earnings ratio is still the fair market value of the market. Now, what's the price-to-earnings ratio? Basically, if you look at the S&P 500 stock index, weighted by capitalization, so the larger stocks have a greater weight, the larger capitalization stocks, the ones that there is more value in the shares, have a larger weighting than the smaller capitalization stocks. And we look at the total earnings and we weight it the same way and we divide one by the other. We find that roughly the S&P 500 is trading at about 20 times earnings. In other words, it takes 20 years of the earnings of the S&P 500, the profits of the S&P 500, to pay for the S&P 500 today. But it's not quite as simple as that. And that's, by the way, about a 5% yield. There is a, the Yardini method, which has a great deal of validity in my opinion says that as long as the yield, the earnings yield on the S&P 500 is higher than the earnings yield or the yield on the 10-year treasury, the market is undervalued. And there's some, there's some strong validity to that because if you buy a 10-year treasury note, interest rates could go up during the 10 years and you could wind up, and you have to hold it for 10 years to have a reasonable chance of getting your money back. Because if interest rates go up at five years dramatically, which they easily could do for a lot of reasons, then the value of your treasury note at five years might be down by 50% or 40% or 20% from where you bought it. So there's risk in owning a treasury note if you don't own it until, you, until it's matured at 10 years. And the number of times that the stock market has failed to give back your money in dollars if you bought into the S&P 500 or the equivalent over the last 100 years or so. Anyway, if you... If you hold the S&P 500 for 10 years, the chances of your losing money in it becomes very, 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 very slim. And a matter of fact, in modern history, post-World War II history, it's never happened. And so we anticipate it not happening again. It's the, it, there's no promise of that. There's no guarantee. But the reality is that the 10-year Treasury note and holding stocks for 10 years, a basket of stocks for 10 years, carries approximately the same risk. Therefore, the yields should be approximately the same in a perfectly balanced market situation. Now, the backside to that is the 10-year Treasury note is artificially low right now. The yield on the Treasury note is low. The natural yield, according to, the, according to Moody's and Morningstar, is about 1.6%. So until the market gets a lot higher, the Treasury note interest rates get a lot higher, it looks like we have an undervalued market. You've been listening to the first hour of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff McClure. If you'd like to contact us off the air, we do provide wealth management and investment portfolio management and investment advice to people with higher net worth. And our telephone number is locally 254-947-1111. If you want to call long distance on a landline, it's 1-800-914-7526. It's 1-800-914-PLAN. You can also find out all about us, including our disclosures and our forms and everything else, on tpwc.com, www tangopapawhiskeycharlie.com. You're also welcome to listen to our podcast by going to that location. So until next hour, this is going to be the end of the first hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. We'll be back next hour with more and some details on what's going on in the economy. This is Jeff McClure and the Personal Wealth Coach.